you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to him. I continued going back and forth to Atlanta to my therapy and my group on Mondays. I'd made the commitment and I sure as hell wasn't going to stop now. So I would drive down there on a Monday and do the deal and then drive back at night. And one of the girls in the group who had just this real brokenness that I'd mentioned, she had really suffered and week after week. And it just seemed like I just wasn't sure if anything was ever going to shift for her. And I just really felt for her because I could identify with just that hopelessness of feeling like, you know, one step forward, 42 steps backward, not in circumstantial things, but internally. And she had this dream of being a pilot, like flying. And it just really seemed like a dream, like, you know, and everybody was always very supportive and she was in the corporate world. And, and so in some of our processes, you know, she would always enroll me as her ideal mother or her ideal father or her ideal sister. When you're doing psychodrama, you enroll a person that you feel comfortable with in the group that you can actually either basically physically sit by, hold their hand, hold them. It's very weird and uncomfortable and awkward. But it's about taking your ego out of it, taking yourself out of it, and really being there. And just being with that person. I remember going back one night and and we started group and she had some news and she had enrolled in flight school and it was a fucking big deal and everybody was so excited and I just saw this person just transform and I thought, you know, taking a risk is okay. But I continued working with Therapy Lady and I continued on this journey of trying to understand depression and you know, maybe I'm bipolar. I don't know. Maybe I'm manic depressive. I mean, I have these highs. I have these lows. I know I'm alcoholic, but I just never feel 
real happy about things. I get excited to a degree, but I'm always scared to get excited, you know, because you're like, when's the shoe going to drop? And, and especially in relationships, Jesus in heaven, you know, relationships are the, are my Achilles heel. And Elizabeth and I were really starting to fight and, you know, having this new house and trying to make decisions because it had brand new Berber carpet through the whole thing. And she wanted wood floors and we kind of both did because we had the dogs. And so we rip out the carpet and now we're having floors installed. And it, it was sort of like this project was starting. And then I was starting with my shop and, you know, the shop was a really big deal for me. And I would tell therapy a lady, you know, I would just kind of get feedback from her on how to deal with what was going on at home and then try to to be at peace with this new endeavor. And I remember one time therapy lady told me pretty long time ago that you know, she said, you know, there's not many people really and truly. She said, this is kind of off the record, but there's not many people in this world that really need to be in a relationship. She said, relationship is relating to someone. Be in relation with and she talked about, you know, there's there's a few, a handful of people that can go climb Mount Everest. There's only a handful that can really endure and train and go through that diligence to climb Mount Everest. And that's kind of like relationships. You know, the rest of the people, they're looking for recreation. And she said, most of people in our society are just really unconsciously looking for recreation. They want a playmate. They want somebody to do stuff with. They don't want to go deep. They don't want to climb the fucking mountain, Jill. And I really got it. And then we talked about soul and past lives. And, you know, she said, I really don't believe in traditional marriage. I think it's a bunch of bullshit made up by religion, basically to control and how people come in our lives. And it's okay. They come in our lives for a reason. When the divine appointment is up, you'll know it. And so I just, that always stuck in my mind, you know, and it wasn't like I was always looking for the fucking back door, like one foot out the back door but I felt like I cannot be in the kind of discord and the kind of fueled, uh, passive-aggressive, argumentative state that we had started being in. And so my shop, which I named The Enchanted Garden, I had to put the on the front because some other company had the name, I guess, in Raleigh, but... I became the Enchanted Garden, and I went to this place every day, and I put this brown craft paper over the windows, and I wrote, Coming Soon, the Enchanted Garden. But I sealed myself up in there, and I had this total empty space to create. 
And the first thing I did, I did all the walls and textures and colors, and I made it look like old European places like Vienna or Italy or just did this really cool finishes on the walls. And I just really enjoyed this more than anything I had ever done. And I had Burr Haney with me. I'd take him with me. And I remember it had these really cool windows in the back that opened out. You know, they had like an old-fashioned lever. The building was really old. Brick wall on the back wall. But you'd open these windows. And I remember it snowing. And I would just be in there. And they had this radio station, WNCW. And it didn't have a bunch of commercials, but it was like this music that was very different than all the Atlanta radio stations. It was sort of like local and not really bluegrass, but just different. And so it was very calming. But I would I would just work on this space, you know, and I had a bunch of stuff in storage still in Atlanta that I would be bringing up as fixtures and most of it was furniture and big farm tables and shelving and things that I had accumulated that I had always saved along the way that I knew when I got ready to do this that I'd have all that. I built a water feature right when you walked in the front door over to the left there was a pond with a small little waterfall and I had talked with my friends at Atlanta Water Gardens, the guys in Midtown that had opened the big, huge greenhouse that was sort of like my dream. And and Kelly, one of the owners, had given me a lot of their vendor names of places that he bought things from and the statuary and just unbelievable, beautiful hand-carved stone fountains and just things that I was just very intrigued with and I remember this one lady out in California, and she did these huge copper bowls. They were just hand-hammered copper bowl fountains with a with a copper bamboo pipe. So serene, and oh, man, I had like probably close to 100 fountains in there. And so the sound of water was just mesmerizing. Well, one of the artists that I had gotten the name from was Carlos, and he was in Atlanta, And Carlos had been an apprentice for an artist named Christine Sibley. Well, Christine Sibley, back in the day, had a place in Decatur called Urban Nirvana. Now, Christine was not of this world. She was way ahead of her time. And she had done this, this, these, what they called, I guess, what now they called garden art or yard art. But she would do these women's faces And she was sort of emulating her own face, and she did these bowls called the Four Seasons, and she had these wall plaques, and these things were heavy, heavy duty, and they were cast concrete, but they used a a marble and concrete composite, so it had a smoother finish than old-fashioned concrete statuary. It was very elegant, and so I had bought several pieces to go in a few gardens back in Atlanta, and I'd purchased those from Atlanta Water Gardens, and they were pieces of Christine Sibley. And one of those pieces was a Kuan Yin, and it wasn't an ornate, decorative female, like you see a lot of the statuary. 
It stood maybe three feet tall, and it was a very slender, slender woman with very faint features, and she looked as though she was more or less like a refugee in Cambodia. She had this this walking stick and a very tattered sort of dress. That statue spoke to me so deeply, and I took it home before I put it in this lady's garden in over in Brookhaven in Atlanta. And this was back at the house with Elizabeth. And I would sit and look at that statue and stare at it. And it really started dawning on me that, you know, when a person does a piece of art, there's something coming out of them. There's some sort of energy that they transfer into this piece. And I just stared at it and stared at it. And I wanted to keep it real bad. And I'm not a materialistic person. I can pretty much let things go and just keep a picture in my mind. But there was something about this Kuan Yin that was really speaking to me. Well, I went ahead and I took it to the lady's house and I installed it. And she died. She loved it. And it was killer and all that. So when I was talking to Kelly at Atlanta Water Gardens, he called me one day and he said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? And he said, Christine Sibley has died. And I went, are you kidding me? She was 50. I think she was 50 years old. And apparently she had some heart attack or something from an herbal menopausal remedy. That's the story. I'm not really quite sure. But he said, if you have any of her pieces, you need to hang on to them. I said, oh, shit, you know, and I knew that that piece was at that woman's house. And he said, oh, my God. He goes, well, Carlos, who was her apprentice for 20 something years, the night before she died, she called him and said, I want to give you something. You've been with me all these years. And she gave him a lot of the molds to her work. And it was just the most bizarre story. And Christine Sibley was a icon in Atlanta. She had done things at the botanical gardens, at many restaurants, just all over the place. She was all over the place. You know, she was a cool woman. She hung out with the Almond Brothers. I mean, she was just a really interesting woman who was very ahead of her time, like I said. Well, I got Carlos's phone number and I called him and I said, God dang, that Kuan Yin was talking to me, I swear to you. And he says, I don't have the mold for that, but if we could ever get it back, you know, I can create a mold. Well, he had a huge collection of Christine's objects. And I said, you know what, Carlos, I really would like to have some of those, but I don't, you know, and he said, look, just come here and load your truck. I will make you anything you want. You pay me whenever. I don't care. I know you're good for it. So my shop consisted of a lot of these pieces from Christine Sibley and they were magical and I'm not exaggerating. Well, when it came time to open the shop, 
I was really nervous because I thought, okay, I've been dreaming on this for a long time. This has been in a picture in my mind for a very long time. And I was really, really scared because, you know, the old, oh, wonder if I fail, nair, 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 all that whole thing. And one thing that I know today is that if I'm working to prove that I'm not a failure, then I'm just negating my possibility of succeeding. And that doubt, you know, was always in the back of my mind, but... Elizabeth was very sweet during this, and her mother had come for the grand opening, which was really nice of her and generous. And so the night I took the paper off of the windows, which was on a Friday evening because I was going to open on a Saturday, March 3rd, 2000, I think it was. And Elizabeth and her mom, they were very sweet, and they made me a little cake and gave me a card and balloons and they made it special. They acknowledged that vision and that was something that I was not used to. You know, I've been on this trek for many, many, many years and I just have never had family members or many people that supported those visions. It was usually those those doubts and those looks they give each other, like, here she goes again. But they really acknowledged it, and I really, really appreciated it to this day. That was a very special thing. And so I opened the shop, and oh, I was so nervous I couldn't stand it. But anyway, people came, and I did pretty good, and um, so that was starting to happen. One of the things that I painted in the shop, up behind the register, it had very high ceilings, and in this kind of gold, sort of old gold paint, I painted in kind of old English lettering, not quite old English, but a little, just the font was similar because I wanted it to look fairy tale-ish. And it had dot, 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 and they lived happily ever after. And I painted those words across the top of the wall. And people would look up at that, and they'd go, oh, and they lived happily ever after. And I would sort of laugh and go, yeah, I left Atlanta, and here I am, and I lived happily ever after. And it was sort of this, like, mantra that I was trying to believe because now, you know, I had this manifestation of these ideas. And, and you know, if you'd have told me years when I first quit drinking and everything was in shambles, if you'd have told me that I would be standing in Black Mountain, North Carolina with this beautiful gallery of objects and energy I would have said, you're out of your fucking mind. I thought I'd still be at the cheese shop, you know. Who knew? But I was so proud and so excited to be having this experience. Well, Black Mountain was a very interesting town. Basically, the sidewalks pulled up at 5 o'clock. I mean, things closed. I couldn't believe everything closed at 5 o'clock. You couldn't even find anything for dinner. 
you know, the only place that was open was my father's pizza, and I think they stayed open till eight, and and it was bizarre. So you'd have to go to Asheville, and there were chain restaurants and stuff like that, but there was one restaurant called the Laughing Seed that was in downtown Asheville. It was vegetarian, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of choice. But you know, I added about four hours a day onto my life by leaving Atlanta traffic. And I kind of didn't know what to do with all that time. But while Elizabeth was filling that up, that was not going to be a problem for her. And I would come home from the shop and I would be pretty drained because it's very draining to talk all day. Now, I was used to physical labor all day, and now I'm talking all day? Jesus. Well, she would have like a big-ass pile of mulch and 200 plants, and oh, my God. I thought we could do this this evening, you know, because she's younger than me and more energetic than me, and it's not like I was old. I was 38, but I still didn't want to do all this work, but I'd do it anyway, and so around four months of being in Asheville, I get a call from my mother. And she's like, this little old dog, this Oreo's just biting the shit out of me. Now, my mother's not a hemophiliac, but she's, I guess, what they call a free bleeder, which she doesn't heal quickly. So she has a little trouble. Well, she said his little needle teeth were just biting her and driving her crazy. And I just thought I wanted a puppy, Jill, but I don't, I'm having to rethink this. And I'm like, oh, no. And so she kept calling and saying, I, I'm, I'm liable to bring him up there and just give him back to you. Well, God dang, one Saturday morning I was getting ready and I look up my driveway and here she comes. She'd driven from Charlotte. Coming down the driveway with the peekapoo under one arm and the his little bed under the other arm, and Elizabeth's like, "We're not having another dog, you know. We've got two. We don't need another dog." And I go, well, "What am I going to do?" And so she brought the dog back, and David Oreo. Now I named him Davy because I had a line of lotion products in my shop called Davy's Gate. I said, let's call him Davy's Gate. That's kind of cute. And Elizabeth's rolling her eyes. Well, we get in a knockdown, dragout fight about this peekapoo. We're not keeping it. So she schedules a couple's therapy session for us to go to therapy over this dog. Well, Elizabeth and I had both had some pretty extreme therapy by now. We go to this woman, and it was kind of like Therapy 101. And I remember we went in and we were both really mad at each other and what the fuck. And we go in there and the woman sits down and she's like, Asheville. And she says, so how are you feeling about this? And oh, my God. And so we both sat there and, you know, brought up the dog issue and how to navigate through this, how to compromise, blah, blah, blah. It was ridiculous. And the highlight of the session after we gave her the 150 or whatever it was is we walked out into the parking lot and we both just busted out laughing. Like, that was ridiculous. We just dropped that cash and got 
nothing except we laughed. And so Elizabeth's solution was to find a home for Davy's gate. And I'm holding tight. No, I want to keep him. I'm the one that went down to LaGrange, Georgia and took him away from his little mama and Pekingese. It's my fault. I don't want to give him away. And she comes home one night. She goes, I met these two girls, these two girls that are together and they are, um, they're newly sober and one of them's a crackhead, but they're all right. And, um, I want them to come over and let's take a, a walking interview and take the dogs on a walk and they can like interview him. Well, I'm just dying. I'm like, I'm not doing a fucking walking interview with that poor little dog. Well, sure enough, she brings these two girls home the next night and we went on the mountains to sea trail and Davy's gate was, you know, happy. He was running with Burr and Henry Johnson, the poodle, and they were happy and walking and running and we didn't have him on leash or anything, just kind of running through the woods and he'd come back and he's real cute. And we get back and they were like, well, we'll think about it. We'll let you know tomorrow. And we get back to the house and I said, no, 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 no. They're not taking this dog. And it was just a very big argument. But I was very committed to taking care of this little puppy. And so it really became a thorn in the relationship. But we ended up keeping him. So anyway, life went on. My shop was doing well. I was very, very grateful that I had this new life. My home life was not going very well. We were fighting worse than ever. And there were intimacy problems, and there were just problems. And I think when resentment builds to a point where you just can't really talk to a person anymore, and I just hated this because that's what I grew up in. I grew up in passive aggressiveness. I grew up in silence. I grew up in giving somebody the cold shoulder and then giving it back. You know, that whole vicious loop. And I really didn't know what to do. But the shop was my saving grace. And so I would go and I would just be there. And I started meeting people. And across the board, people would come into that shop and it was like they would go into another dimension. They were sort of mesmerized, and I was kind of mesmerized watching them, and I played all my favorite music. I played Billie Holiday and Najee and Keiko Matsui. There were all kinds of jazz artists, and energetically, you know, you can see people's demeanors change as they feel a certain way and the colors and the lights and the sound of the water. It was intriguing. It was an enchanted garden. It really was. And I had created this basically from a fucking MTV video of Stevie Nicks dancing in an enchanted forest at the end of Gypsy. I mean, seriously. That vision was in my mind in 19... 80, 81, somewhere in there. And I knew it. And I knew that I was going to make that happen one day. So this whole thing had come together. And I thought, 
this is it. I'm here. I've landed. And they lived happily ever after. And I truly, truly felt like that I had created my own utopia. And I was very proud of this. Well, people would come in and they would stand there and they were like in this sort of daze. And then they would say, ah, I just want to move here. I feel so drawn here. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, I'm not going to say anything because I was drawn here. And I don't want to sound like a fucking woo-woo, central woo-woo from hell evangelist, but I feel the same way. And they would talk about how they just want to go home and sell their houses and move there. Well, then I had people coming in and they'd be all glassy-eyed and they'd say, have you been to the light center? And I'm like, what's the light center? And they go, oh, it's this geodesic dome up Highway 9. It was founded back in the 70s from these people that came through the Shenandoah Valley and they were basically dowsing for energy. And I'm like, what? You know how you douse for water? Well, they were dowsing for energy. And I'm like, what the fuck? And they started talking about ley lines and the Eastern Continental Divide being in line with the Western Continental Divide which was basically in line with Albuquerque. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, okay. And I had this flashback of Susie and I had taken a trip to Asheville in 1995 and stayed at the Grove Park Inn. And she had given me this as a gift. And I had never been there. Well, my back went out. And when I say went out, it went completely out. I could barely walk. Well, we went through the phone book until we found a chiropractor in Asheville who would see me off the cuff without x-rays and all that bullshit. Because I had had chiropractor for years. And so it was Greenspan's sister. And she was awesome. And I went in and... She adjusted me, and she recommended some muscle work. Well, we found this place called the Asheville Massage Center, and it was basically on Lexington Avenue in this old kind of rock building, cool building. And I got an appointment with a guy, and his name was Ron, and he looked like Jesus, and he was good-looking and cool. I like this guy, man. I walked in there. When I saw Jesus, I'm like, okay, heal me, brother. And as I laid on the table and he worked on me, he said he had moved maybe from Baltimore. I'm not quite sure, but he had moved down because Asheville was the New Age Mecca. And I said, oh, Lord, here we go. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not kidding. And this was uh, before 95 when I guess he had moved. And he said, you wait, it's going to be the Mecca of this country. And so that had sort of planted a seed, but not really. Like I really didn't, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I was into kind of new agey, but I wasn't obsessed 
well, now with these people coming in my shop and telling me all this stuff, I was like, okay, there's something going on here. What is the light center? And so I decided to go there. And I drove up Highway 9, and it was this kind of, you know, mountainy kind of road that makes you car sick if you're not driving. And this man had told me, he said, you'll see it. You'll see a white sign with blue letters, and it just says the light center with an arrow and just go up the gravel road. And so I did. And so I went up this road, and it was pretty steep, and put it in a four-wheel drive, and finally... I drive up and there's this like dome, this kind of geodesic looking dome. Now, at this point in my life, I had never heard of the Black Mountain School. I had no idea what any of that stuff meant. Well, I got out of my truck and I went inside of this place and there was a lady there, and everything was free. It was, wasn't like you paid or anything. And she kind of showed me around and went in this one area, and it was kind of like a lecture room with the dome, and I was purplish carpet, and it was kind of flipping me out a little bit because it was reminding me of, like, Heaven's Gate or something. You know, those people out in California that all, like, castrated themselves and drank vodka and whatever, but I was like, okay, this is a little bit tripping me out, but I'm open. And she said, would you like to go into the light chamber room? And I was like, I might as well. And so she took me into this room and there were these red chairs that kind of looked like Star Trek. And she said, take a seat and then I'll close the door and I'm going to play some music, some chimes and some sounds and just relax. I was like, all right, you know. So she closes the door and all these lights start changing colors. And the colors were to represent the colors of the chakras. Well, I sat in there and I just sort of closed my eyes and I kind of let all this happen and then there would be like different chimes and different levels of sound, almost sort of like a gong and sort of like a heart and just different sounds that would sort of, you know, go into your chest, sort of. Well, I just sort of went with it. And then I started getting chills over my body. Kind of like, you know, chills when you get like when... Not like when you're cold, but like when you see a beautiful picture or a sunset. I mean, sometimes I get chills and sometimes I don't because I'm numbed out from all the cocaine, I think. But anyway, these chills were sort of coming into me like, and I guess the only way I can describe that type of chill is when, if I had to say the word joy, what that would feel like, joy would represent chills, like pure bliss. And so I sat there and I had this experience and I came out and I left. And so when now when people would come into my shop and they'd start talking to me about the way they were feeling, I'd say, oh, have you been to the light center? And so I just started sending them up there because I didn't know where else to send them.
I didn't realize that there was some sort of synchronicity happening in this place. And of course, you know, there were regular people too. I mean, my landlords, they were just good old regular people and I really liked them a lot. And, you know, they were very open and they were really um, generous in allowing me to redo the space the way I wanted to. And so there was, you know, I met a lot of the people around. I met a lot of the other shopkeepers. I met these two women that had a shop called the Ginkgo Tree, Joy and Lib. And to this day, they're just great friends. I love them so much. I never get to see them, but they were very influential in my life in those early days in Black Mountain. Well, Trouble in Paradise continued at the home front. And Elizabeth had gone out of town for work, and she'd had to go back and forth to Atlanta quite a bit. And so this one night, we went to this place, I think it was called The Dragon. It's kind of a Thai restaurant, and I could tell there was something wrong. Like, she just, she seemed out of sorts, and we hadn't been talking much, and it was very strained, and we sat down, and... We were getting ready to order, but before we ordered, she she started crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she started just crying real bad. And she said, I feel like I'm losing my best friend. And I didn't even know she was talking about me. And I go, what do you mean? And and she kept saying this stuff about losing her best friend and, and, and you know, and crying. And I said, what what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, she goes, I cheated on you! And she yelled it right across the table. And it was like somebody had taken a shotgun and just blown a hole through my stomach. And I just sat there and stared at her. And of course, the most wrong, horrible thing to say is, Oh, great! And that's what came out of my mouth. And she got up and stormed out of the restaurant. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates. <laughs>